The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Joel Silberman. He's a opinion writer for the L.A. Times. Uh, he is, uh, well, he has his article that he wrote for the L.A. Times is, Why Do We Love to Watch Psychopaths? One of the topics, actually, that I'm interested in. In. Joel Silberman is a Los Angeles-based writer and the producer of such viral web videos such as Legitimate Rape, Pharmaceutical Ad, and Kids Do the News. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Joel. Thank you. Nice to be here. Well, that's quite a topic. And as you and I did, well, before we went on the air, you said, well, there haven't been that many people interested in this particular topic that you wrote about in the L.A. Times. I happen to be one who's really interested in it. It seems to me there are so many programs on today that have to do television programs, television series, CSI, Criminal Minds, and, and, and lots more that deal with the mm-hmm. top of psychopaths, and I, I really kind of binge on these on these programs, to be honest with you. So um, why do we love to watch so psychopaths? What's in our psyche and in the American culture that kind of draws us to these kinds of programs? Well, it's interesting uh, because, as you mentioned, I obviously had the same uh, kind of fascination that you have. I've watched these shows, um, and especially after the Robert Burst show aired and then ended so dramatically uh, a whole bunch of producers, uh, TV writers, um, other kinds of experts, technical experts from CSI uh, to say, well, you know, what is the the draw of these shows? Um, And it it doesn't spark the same kind of controversy as some of the, you know, political articles that that I've written, but the the answer but, that... But, you know, Joel, I want to interrupt a minute, because I think one of the things, you know, there's so much violence going on in the world here in the United States, nationally, internationally, and people or the public is always saying, well, it's because we have so much of this stuff on television that we watch, these kinds of shows that you and I are going to be talking about. So they kind of blame the shows that we watch on TV, like these murder, killer kinds of shows, and then say, well, maybe that's why there's so much actual real violence going on in our in our country as well as others. Right. And actually, the violence question uh, is a separate shade of, uh, a little bit separate from the psychopath issue, but I think it's a, it's a huge thing, as you say, and I disagree uh, with a lot of mainstream, I suppose, thinking that uh, entertainment, violent entertainment, um, is the is this reason why people uh, is the reason why there's a lot of violence or something like that? I mean, I, I, I 
state can certainly play a role. But I think that with violent entertainment, um, people are, I think, fascinated by violence because actually violence is at a very low ebb in terms of human history. Like, it seems terrifying and horrible the amount of violence in the world, and of course there can never be little enough violence in the world, but relative to the average human experience over the course of most of human existence, there's not that much violence out there now, and I think that there is a sense, you know, of fascination with this thing that we don't, most people don't interact with violence on a daily basis. We don't, um, we're not, we have police forces and, uh, you know, we've outsourced violence in our society to governments, uh, and we don't fight, you know, with wild animals anymore to get our food. Uh, so I think that people are kind of looking for that surge of adrenaline, um, and they tend to find it in entertainment. Are you saying that there is less violence? But when I when I hear you say well, there's less violence, uh, in other words, but we maybe have more access to knowing where and when the violence occurs. Even though you know, if there's one killing in 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 the, in the United States, we know about it and we know about it constantly, twenty four seven. But that doesn't necessarily mean, in terms of volume, that we have more violence than we did, let's say, a century ago or even before that. So we have less violence, but I think we're more aware of the violence. Correct. So we have, if any violence anywhere, we end up hearing about now. So in a lot of ways, it feels like there's more violence. However, in terms of how we as individuals experience life, most people now, far fewer people now, live day-to-day violent existences or have to face violence and its consequences every day than would have 100 years ago or 200 years ago. Um, we're certainly in the years before that. So violence has been kind of moved out of the mainstream for most of society. And so I think that we fill that that area of fascination with violent entertainment. So why do we love to watch psychopaths? As you say, that's even a little, that's different than just maybe the uh, ordinary shoot them or <laughs> kill them or bank robberies or, you know, those kinds of things. But we're actually, in your article, you're talking about psychopaths. We really get off on watching psychopaths. Take Criminal Minds, for instance, because I think that you Mm -hmm. discussed that in your article. Um, Why are we so turned on? I mean, there are several, and I I know you've spoken to psychologists, forensic psychologists. There are more Mm -hmm. specific reasons why we're drawn to these kinds of programs, or like the Robert Durst case, for instance, which, yeah. Uh, Well, it's interesting. I think uh, the, you know, different experts have very different opinions. Um, The fellow who was on Criminal Minds is an actor, actually, who, uh, when he got, he has a continual career now of playing psychopaths on TV, despite being apparently a very lovely person. And the fan mail that he gets, he says, is both fascinating and terrifying. Um, but I think it, in the, in the area of, of psychopaths, I think that it's this strange dance between, um, being repulsed and wanting to understand that which sickens us, but also there's an attraction to it. There's a sense of id where we kind of wonder, well, you know, what could I do if I didn't have, uh, empathy? What could I do if I wasn't burdened? by my own sense of uh, morality and tying to other people. 
So, um, and it's also important to note as one of the uh, authors of a professor at Harvard Medical School uh, who contributed to the piece uh, writes, uh, he has a whole book about this called Almost a Psychopath, that psychopathy exists on a spectrum. So a lot of the people who we watch on TV, some of them are pure psychopaths. I, I believe that Robert Durst is about as far on the psychopath spectrum as you can get. But, you know, a lot of these other characters, the you know, your Tony Sopranos, Walter White's, those are characters who are not, you know, they're they're not 100% psychopaths, but they're 80 to 90%. And, you know, most people are probably not at 0%. You know, most of us are probably at... 10 or 20% and we go, wow, what would it be like to be further over there um, and kind of be unshackled? Um, what could we get done? And I hypothesize that in some cases there's a sense of wish fulfillment. In some cases there's a sense that um, we feel better about ourselves because we go, hey, well, you know, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a psychopath, so at least I've got something going for me. Yeah, so I'm a really good, I can see myself as a really good person, even though I'm not a perfect person, but, you know, look at these guys, look what they're doing, and you're saying psychopaths exactly. are on a, on a continuum, maybe we can even identify with some of it on the low end of the scale, um, but not hopefully not with Robert Durst. But then also you're saying, you know, we have the id, the ego, and the superego, if, you know, that Freudian analysis of, you know, how we operate, and so we, our id is just all the stuff that, we have to hold not all of it, but most of it hold in with our. And if we don't have that super ego or that ego, we we would let go, and we would be a you know kind of have this psychopathic behavior. Uh, so we live vicariously. This is the stuff that by watching these kinds of well shows, for instance. Uh, yeah, and I oh, I always have to have the caveat with with uh, with Freud that uh, I don't. I think that he has some useful concepts. Uh, the scientific underpinnings of them uh, can be debated, but that the id and the ego, like there, there are always, uh, you know, draws to things that uh, we really want to do, and then things that hold us back from doing them. Um, and one of the big things that uh, you know keeps us from doing what's best for us. Uh, is that a lot of times we do feel like, oh, well, I, I wouldn't want to do something terrible to somebody else. But then you have a show um, like a Dexter or uh, even a House of Cards where the lead characters don't have those kinds of problems. They just do what is best for them. And so we get to watch them and go, ooh, well, what would that be like for me? But then they're so repulsive in the way that they do it that we say, well, you know, I could obviously, you know, be president of the United States if I could, would just push people in front of trains, but I wouldn't do that. So, you know, at least I'm not a psychopath. What is your favorite show? What are the, or what, maybe there's just not one favorite show, but obviously you came up with this idea. You kind of, uh, maybe I should ask you that question. How did this kind of, you formulate this? Because you watch a lot of these shows or or uh, just observing other people, or, you know, what was the sort of the, the motivation for the article? Well, it's interesting, because I'm a... I, I work in TV uh, and work, live in the world of pitching TV shows and selling TV shows and that kind of thing, in addition to the LA Times work. And 
you know, when you do that, you start breaking down, like, what are the formulas that work? And once I, I noticed, it's like, gosh, there really are a lot of shows about psychopaths on TV. <laughs> and then finally, when the last episode of The Jinx, the Robert Durst show aired, I felt like that was one of the most incredible moments of television I'd ever seen, just totally heart-in-the-throat moment. And I kind of had my own beliefs about what I thought this was all about, what this phenomenon was all about. But uh, I said, well, you know, I should probably do a little bit of research and ask some people who would know better than than I do. And the, and the themes that kept coming up were uh, the idea of id versus super id versus ego uh, and superego and um, the kind of trying to figure out what we have in common and what we don't have in common uh, with people who have this kind of uh, different psychological reasoning. Well, I know when I watch CSI, and as I told you in the beginning of the interview, I like binge on CSI from, I don't know, I forget how many actual seasons there are. Uh, but part of it is, the other side of it, and I think maybe this is something that you mentioned in your research, the other side of it is that you get to also connect with those detectives who are solve the mystery or the uh, whatever the, you know, the, the murder or whatever the, you know, the scenario is, and sort of you can identify with them as well. It's, it's, it's both sides of the picture. Absolutely, and, and CSI and a number of the, the psychologists in particular pointed this out, that uh, on those shows, uh, they actually help us feel safe because there's a predictability to it. And in real life, you know, really violent people, including violent psychopaths, can be very unpredictable. In this case, you know, you watch CSI and um, it makes things feel like it all ties up nicely and, and gives us a sense that, oh, you know, things will work out and we can be protected. Uh, Matt Nix, who is the creator and executive producer of Burn Notice, uh, made a really interesting observation. I thought that in a lot of these in a lot of the things that we watch, even if we're not really thinking about it, the heroes, uh, and not even necessarily just on crime shows, but the heroes that we tend to like in our contemporary popular culture are a kind of, as he put it, pro-social psychopaths, where uh, they, they have aims we appreciate or identify with. I'm uh, looking at his quote here right now, but they still kill without guilt or remorse. They lie easily to get what they want, and they experience no fear. Um, and those are psychopathic traits um and so our heroes are actually on a psychopathic spectrum as well not just the villains yeah well how does the how does the shame and the guilt and the actually not feeling guilty come into all of this you know how does that come into play i mean they can get away with this and do these horrific heinous crimes and yet not feel guilty and not feel well, guilt is really or, or ashamed or feel that they did anything wrong. Um, how does our connection to that while we're viewing these characters, what, what is our connection to that? Um, yeah, I think uh, our connection to it is that, um, you know, in for for adults, it's kind of a superpower, you know, like, uh, when you're a kid, you dream of being able to fly. When you're an adult, um, sometimes, and 
there's there's some truth to this. Sometimes people who, uh, especially when dealing with other violent people, um, sometimes they have to be able to condition We're losing you, Joel. Are you you're on your cell? I, I, I am. You, yeah. So well, you kind of just went out on that one. So can you repeat what your or what your answer was? Because I didn't hear the last part of that. I apologize for that. That's a, uh, so I was uh, just saying that with uh, a lot of law enforcement, military training, et cetera, people are psychologically conditioned um, to to be able to interact with, uh, to be able to to do violent things without shame, um, and that can be a double-edged sword. Um, but in narratives, you know, if you are a writer and you want to be able to have a character who goes around doing things that seem really cool and fighting all kinds of bad guys, then he's going to have to not feel, or she's going to have to not feel a lot of guilt, shame, or remorse about taking the bad guy out. What about the, uh, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the movie American Sniper, which is really popular. Uh, how does yeah. that fit into the picture? Because it's, in, it's interesting that you say that, because I... Had very mixed feelings about that movie. On the one hand, I really appreciate how it reached out and inspired a lot of veterans uh, who've been through a lot, and I think that it provides a service in that way. On the other hand, um, you know, I think like Chris Kyle would certainly, and either based on his public statements, I'm going more here um, from what I've read of him personally, instead of his portrayal in the film, that, like, he would be either somebody who's covering for, um, you know, feeling really kind of eaten up inside about some of the things that he had to do during the war, um, or if he truly felt as little remorse as he said publicly, then um, he would have been really on the psychopathic spectrum a little bit further along than people would think. What's what seems most likely to me, especially based off of the film and the testimony or the testimonials from his wife, is that he was eaten up inside by a lot of stuff but felt it was better to portray himself publicly as somebody who just felt no guilt, no remorse. Yep, I went in there, I did what I had to do and I loved it. And uh, you know, it's like he he felt when he was presenting himself like it would be better, he probably wasn't thinking of it in these terms, to present himself kind of as a psycho. And uh, that that seems brave. Uh, that, can, that can read as brave. Um, but that does raise the question of why do we put that on such a pedestal um, of not having emotions? And I think as a society, we're just now, especially for men, learning to deal learning to talk about guilt, shame, um, et cetera, and saying, you know, those things are okay, even in a context of war, even in a context of, um, you know, a violent profession. Yeah. So, Joe, we are able to, in this context, I guess, uh, we do, we legitimize that kind of behavior, uh, maybe because we just need to do that culturally. But on the other hand, we also, we abhor, I mean, when you talk, let's talk about, like, 
ISIS or, you know, we're beheading people. Um, is, is that psychopathic behavior? We abhor that. We don't want, and that's real life. That's the real stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, and so that we don't accept. Or, so how does that fit in? Well, again, talking about the violence over the course of history, ISIS historically and groups like it and that level of violence has kind of been the norm. So when we say that violence is on the way down, like ISIS is terrible. It is the worst of the worst. But it's also like there's less of it worldwide than there was a couple hundred years ago or 500 years ago if you go back to the Middle Ages when people just constantly had vendettas and went around and killed each other. but there's actually a, a terrifying but very clear logic to a group like ISIS from a psychopathic perspective where they, they say, well, if we're going to really be able to control uh, territory with relatively few people, if we're going to be able to get international attention through media and otherwise, we're going to have to commit these extravagant acts of violence that really horrify people and they have to keep upping the ante because otherwise people won't care. They have to keep doing it to be taken seriously. And um, I I suspect that you kind of have to be, you kind of have to be a psychopath to be able to do that. But, um, you know, psychopaths rise to the top, whether it is in terrorism, whether it is in politics, a huge percentage of our politicians relative to the population test highly on a psychopathic spectrum or exhibit psychopathic traits, Wall Street, same thing. So ISIS is a form of powerful group. Powerful groups disproportionately tend to have a lot of psychopaths in them. Well, you you interviewed a a forensic psych, well, I guess probably several forensic psychologists. You know, that's becoming such a popular major or study in in a lot yeah. of the universities. I'm in New York City, and I know that uh, one in particular, I mean, a, a lot of, I know a lot of uh, kids, young people who are going into the field of forensic psychology, it holds a real kind of a draw for them today, I think more so than any other time. And uh, is it a result of what we see on television or, or what is, or what is it, or just a result of what's happening in the, you know, the outer, what's happening in the universe, you know, in real, in real life? Well, I think that it's a combination of things and, and you may know better than I do from an educational point of view, what students are looking for, but you get to solve, you get to solve mysteries in a lot of cases. Um, and try and figure out, okay, well, what exactly happened here and what's true and what's not. Um, I know that depending on what area of forensic psychology you go into, um, people can make more money than in some other areas. Um, and I think that in some other areas of psychology, that is, you know, than, you know, for your average social worker or something like that. And uh, I think that there's something to be said for people just kind of wanting to be able to 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 talk about like oh I'm I'm doing that thing like uh that you've heard of um as opposed to oh I'm doing this thing that you might not have so it's more of a it's exciting it's sexy maybe it's just a you know yeah I mean it's, yeah. it's a, it has a media presence to it um and it also by the way 
can do real good. So it's a way that you can make a nice living, do real good, be on, by the way, an, uh, an industry that's really kind of on the cutting edge. It's growing. It's changing. Um, you can do a lot of interesting things at once and check a lot of boxes career-wise at once. But that's mostly me hypothesizing off the top of my head. Well, did you get the answers you expected when you did the research for this article? Why do we love to watch psychopaths? Were you surprised or, you know, did you get what you expected? You said you had a hypothesis yourself. Was that met or did this kind of change the way you thought about it? Because, I mean, obviously you do a lot of writing. That's what you do uh, for for the L.A. Times, for other uh, newspapers, but you also have these viral videos. One of them is legitimate rape. I wanted to ask you about that. I guess that's two different <laughs> questions. So did you? <laughs> Yeah, uh, that is a that is a funny. It's funny that that still survives in my byline. I think that uh, I think that that's just going to be with me for the rest of my life, and I'm okay with that. Uh, but uh, yeah, the the answers that I got, some of them were exactly what I expected going in, and some of them really weren't. The comment about our heroes uh, also being a form of psychopaths. Uh, we're also falling on the psychopathic spectrum. I wasn't expecting that response. Um, the 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 earnest viewers of psychopath shows, people who just actually really identified with the protagonist and wrote to the actor who played psychopaths on TV, saying, "Wow, we really identified with your character." Um, I wasn't expecting that as much, and um, the different formulations that tried to speak to the balance between, um, you know, repulsion and attraction uh, were very interesting. And they were kind of nuanced de- depending on what the person does, whether the, the person commenting is a writer, producer, or, um, you know, a psychologist who's more on the research end of things. So well, you that, mentioned that, that, that's what because we only have a couple case. more minutes, but I want you to just kind of wind this up. One of your... Um, audience, I guess we would call her, but you, you got a response from a student in, in France in response to this <laughs> uh, opinion page. So what did she have to say? And this is a kid. How old was she? I forgot. You told me how old she was. Seventh grade. Seventh grade. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was funny. I assumed, of course, because it came through email that it was some kind of a prank, but then with the miracle of the internet, I did a little search and went, oh, this is an actual child who just uh, had a little project for her French class, or for her English class, rather. She's in France, uh, where they had to find a news article that they thought was interesting. I'm guessing she found mine because it had a lot of TV producer people listed in it. Um, and she found it and had to did a little presentation to her class summarizing why people are... Uh, why people are fascinated by psychopaths and wrote me about it, which is really the highest praise as a writer you can get. I would say it is. And all it gives you, you have international appeal, obviously, and from a very... At least the seventh graders of, who are interested eight, in psychopaths. Yeah, age group. This is the seventh grade, you said. So, uh, you know, you're kind of covering the demographics. Um we only have about a minute left, so if we want to, you know, we want to stay abreast of, of your your writing. And uh, what do we do? What tell our audience where we can go your website um, so that we can um, read your next opinion page? Yeah. So my 
website is wordpeggio.com, which is like a, a guitar arpeggio or harp arpeggio with words, wordpeggio. And it's the same, facebook.com slash wordpeggio. Twitter is wordpeggio. And I'm also on uh, muckrack.com under my own name, muckrack.com slash Joel Silberman. Uh, and that's where all of my work is compiled, not just LA Times, but other places as well. Okay, great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Joel Silberman, Los Angeles-based writer and producer. And uh, we were discussing his opinion, why do we love to watch psychopaths? Thanks for being on the show this morning. Thanks very much for having me. We are going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com, World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Tune in Tuesdays and join the credit master and consumer advocate, Mr. D, a.k.a. Bruce J. Danielson, and learn the whole truth about credit risk scoring, collectors, both kinds, credit bureaus, credit cards, tax liens, mortgages, and much more. Find out how to use accountability combat to protect yourself from becoming a victim and to fight back against corporate abusers, such as banksters who have taken unfair advantage of most of us. The Consumer Fightback Show educates consumers on how to find relief within today's onerous credit system. See you Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. We are broadcasting from the Phoenix studios at voiceamerica.com. Variety Channel, Going Global with Gas Man is the show that you are listening to. And joining me today is Sean Morley from the WWE, otherwise known as Val Venus, the big Val Boski. Hello, ladies. <laughs> and he's also got a third identification as well. He Absolutely. Is Captain Cannabis. Live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Pacific time on the voiceamerica.com Variety Channel. Going global with gas. Man. How the hell do they know that I got gas? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Dr. Richard Jacoby, author of Sugar Crush: How to Reduce Inflammation, Reverse Nerve Damage, and Reclaim Good Health. Dr. Jacoby is one of the country's leading peripheral nerve, nerve surgeons, and he practices in Scottsdale, Arizona. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Jacoby. Well, thank you, Catherine. 
Okay, sugar crush, how to reduce inflammation, reverse nerve damage, and reclaim good health, title of the book. So sugar is always in the news, uh, every day actually, and what we hear just as a general layperson, sugar is bad for you, it, it causes all kinds of problems, health problems, uh, we need to lower our consumption of sugar, et cetera. Uh, and you describe it as one of the biggest global health concerns today. So let's start out with that. Sugar is one of our biggest global health concerns today. Is sugar what's making us all fat and sick? Absolutely. It makes us fat because it produces an insulin response. And what that means is what, uh, insulin is the only hormone that, that can add fat to your body. If you eat foods that don't produce insulin, then you cannot gain weight. Uh, the hypothesis, the fat hypothesis that fat was bad is really wrong. It's the opposite. Fat is a good substance, and that's what you need for energy. So we got onto a cholesterol-hating society for the last 50 years. Cholesterol actually isn't even a fat. It's a waxy substance that's produced in your liver. So people are taking statin drugs and dieting and exercising, trying to lose weight, and obviously that's not working. The amount of disease that has been produced in the United States in the Western diet is staggering. There's 350 million diabetics worldwide now. In the United States, we have about 100,000 amputations a year, and there's about a million amputations a year in the world. When I first started looking at this problem about 25 years ago, uh, I was amazed at the number of in, uh, infections and diabetic-related problems we were having in our clinic at the hospital. Uh, my primary role in the hospital 25 years ago was dealing with patients with had uh, diabetic ulcerations and amputations. And it dawned on me that the diet is really the number one problem. So I started a, um, a crusade, you might say, to look into this problem. I myself actually had a gallbladder problem uh, about 20 years ago, and I had it excised. My mother had a gallbladder uh, problem. She had her gallbladder removed as well. I thought, as most doctors do today, and there's about 900,000 amputation, which really what a gallbladder is, of the gallbladder, uh, a year in the United you know, just States. For those of us lay persons, I, I mean, I hear frequently, I got my gallbladder removed, but I don't really need it. So if you don't really need it, what is it? What does it do? That's an excellent question. The gallbladder is, a, is, is basically a sac, a muscle, and it houses or stores bile. Bile is needed to uh, aid in digestion of fats in your intestines. So when you eat a fatty meal, um, you need that bile, uh, which is mainly made of cholesterol. So the hypothesis goes something like this. You're eating too much cholesterol, so therefore you blocked your gallbladder, and it forms a stone in the, in the gallbladder itself, and it blocks the bile duct. It's very painful, and it usually is removed. And the second tenet of that hypothesis is don't eat fat. Well, if you don't eat fat, what are you going to eat? And what happened over the last 50 years in the United States, we substituted fat with sugar, any kind of sugar, starch, pasta, bread, etc. 
And that really is the crux of the metabolic syndrome, which eventually leads to diabetes. Now, in my particular case, I thought the same as everybody thought at the time. But I was working in the Scottsdale Healthcare's Wound Center, and I was starting to research this on my own. I said to my family doctor, and when I was in the hospital one day, and he said, where were you? And I said, well, I had my gallbladder out. And he said kiddingly to me, well, you just don't eat enough. You don't exercise your gallbladder. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, gallbladder is a muscle. And, and this gentleman was very portly, good doctor, but very overweight. And he said to me, when he said that to me, it was an epiphany. I said, well, that's right. It is a muscle. Maybe I don't eat enough. And then I started to look into exactly what I was eating because I thought I was in good shape. I exercised every day. I did the 80s mantra of exercise trumps diet, but it's really the other way around. I studied with Dr. Lee Dellen, who's a peripheral nerve surgeon at Johns Hopkins, and he taught me peripheral nerve surgery, which he has applied to the lower extremity. Now, this gets a little technical, but basically think of it this way. Not too technical. We can't get too technical. <laughs> no, we don't want to get too technical. No. Uh, but actually, it's very simple. Uh, hopefully, the book tells it in a simple enough way that uh, the layperson can understand it. But Dr. Dellen, who's a professor of neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins and also a plastic surgeon, by the way, developed the upper extremity surgeries such as carpal tunnel. And I think most people are familiar with carpal, tu carpal tunnel. little background on carpal tunnel. Prior to your... 1960, there were only 12 reported cases in the literature. Last year, there were close to 500,000 carpal tunnels done in the United States. That's a are staggering you even, number. Dr. Jacoby, just to kind of re do a recap of this, are you saying that, okay, now that we're not eating or we're told we're not supposed to be eating fats or any fats, the fat's bad for us, that we've substituted sugar and now we're eating all this sugar and that that's causing all of the as you describe in the book, inflammation, nerve damage. Uh, you describe a link between sugar and Alzheimer's and autism and cancer and actually all of these kind of deadly conditions or diseases. Is, is that what has happened? Exactly. Uh, the fat hypothesis goes back to the 50s, a fellow by the name of Ansel Keys. And he did a, a study, it was called the seven, study, seven Country Study, and he thought that fat was the culprit. What he didn't report in his literature initially, it was really 22 countries in Europe. The other 15 countries, the diet was high in sugar, and that's what was causing the problem. But he, he extrapolated from his study that it was fat, totally and absolutely upside down wrong. Then we started to develop drugs, and the most common drug now is a statin drug to block cholesterol. And cholesterol has nothing to do with heart disease. It's sugar. Now, that sounds against it, all the medical knowledge that we have, but if you read the literature, which I have, and look at it deeply, it's sugar. People that go to the hospital with their first myocardial infarction, in other words, their first heart attack, half of them have high cholesterol. The other half have low cholesterol, but two-thirds of the patients have metabolic syndrome. That's the beginning of diabetes. Sugar so causes why, so okay, you and I have looked at some of the literature as you're saying, and if you really dig deep, 
I have found exactly what you're saying is true. So then why are we being fed literally statins, for instance, when that's, and, and, and we're told that, you know, if we take statins that that's going to prevent heart attacks when, in fact, given your statistics, that's not true, that it really has to do with sugar. Why, why do we find ourselves in that situation? I mean, does that have to do with the medical community or the, the food industry or where is it coming from? Because it, according to you and other sources, that's simply not the case. I think a simple, simple sentence. These, these scientists are brilliant. Um, so I don't think they're stupid, but you've got to follow the money trail. The, in my opinion, where the uh, research is being done is being funded by the food industry, and they are, are in, in cahoots with the drug industry. The statin drugs are probably the highest producing drug ever created on planet Earth. We're talking billions and billions of dollars, right? Billions and billions of dollars. There's an excellent book, Nina Techholt's book, The Big Fat Surprise, who chronicles the history of that very nicely. It's, um, it's a staggering amount of money, and it influences the research that's being done. It has never been fat, and it's, ne- and it's always been sugar. I trace my book back to the beginnings of sugar consumption. Columbus, in his second voyage, brought sugar to the New World. In the 1500s, maybe five pounds of sugar a year. We're about 160 pounds a year of sugar per year per person. And somebody's eating my sugar because I don't eat sugar anymore at all. I don't eat sugar either. I mean, I know that if I go out for dinner, there must be, I know they put sugar in, in the food, even if it doesn't appear that you're getting something that has sugar in it. But uh, I, too, do not eat sugar. And I don't miss it, but I think that there is this addictive quality to it as you say, which also produces a lot of money. I mean, it seems to me they put sugar in everything. It's very difficult to go into the grocery store, for instance, and look on the packaging and and, and, and see something that doesn't have sugar in it. Absolutely. 80% of the food in the grocery stores, 80% has high fructose corn syrup in it. Now, that's, that's probably the sugar that is causing most of the problem. High fructose corn syrup is a synthetic substitute for uh, cane sugar. All sugars are bad in that quantity, but high fructose corn syrup is extremely bad, in my opinion, because it's so ubiquitous. It's in everything, 80% of the foods. So when I ask patients, do you eat sugar? They, they always say no. I said, well, let's go through what you're eating. And I said, what, what did you have for breakfast? Well, I had a banana and I had cereal and they always tell me non-fat milk as if that's going to make it good. Non-fat milk is nothing more than sugar water. You took the fat out. The fat is what you need. It's always been the fat that was good. Cereal is a processed grain, and it's extremely high in sugar. It breaks, carbohydrates break down to sugar. Orange juice, orange juice and vitamin C, there's always that debate. Well, orange juice does have both but it has extreme amount of sugar in it, and all the benefits you might get from the vitamin C are flushed out um, with the amount of sugar that's in that drink. So Americans are consuming tremendous amounts of sugar, and they have tremendous amounts of diseases, and that's in my book. I extrapolate carpal tunnel of the wrist and diabetic peripheral neuropathy of the foot to all the other neurodegenerative diseases, including autism, Alzheimer's, MS, and ALS, and a host of other diseases, including cancer. 
Right, let's talk about cancer because that's the big, you know, cancer is obviously, well, is the huge fear. How can, you know, when am I, am I going to be next? And it's really scary, and we all know someone who's been affected or has cancer, friends, family, et cetera. So what is the link between sugar and cancer? Well, I dug into the literature on that one. It was surprising to me as well. Uh, one of the statistics I just read the other day, if age 65, you have about a 70% chance, or excuse me, not 70%, 70 times chance of dying from cancer. Now, it's been said that the longer you live, the higher prevalence of cancer, and that is true. But I look back in the literature, there's a fellow by the name of Otto Warburg. He got the Nobel Prize in 1931. And he got the Nobel Prize for saying exactly what I just said. It's sugar. And specifically, it's fructose. And he, he got the Nobel Prize, not the Marvell comic book prize, the Nobel Prize in medicine. Uh, and yet, when I ask other doctors, including oncologists, they seem to not ever have read his work. The ketogenic diet, um, which is starting to get a little popular, ketogenic diet means absolutely no carbohydrates. And what Otto Warburg had said in his Ph.D. dissertation and his Nobel Prize award was that cancer cells can only live when they're given fuel to eat, and that fuel is sugar, and specifically fructose. When you go on a ketogenic diet, no carbohydrates, no sugar, you produce ketones. Cancer cells die when they are subjected to ketones. So I use a little analogy if you're, you're talking about cancer. Think of it as like roaches in a, on a floor, and you have a PET scan, and that's the, the device that we look for the body to see if we can find, some, find a hot spot cancer. And it lights up these little um, spots on, on the PET scan. That lighting up spot really means the turnover of the metabolism inside the cell and that what it means is it's eating the cancer cells are eating a lot of sugar so we give them chemotherapy think of it as a house and a metaphor and you have roaches on the floor you come in and you spray it with raid to kill the roaches come back six months later and there's another hot spot you spray it again with raid wouldn't it be sensible to take the food away from the cancer cells but that's not what we do in the united states we give them uh, drinks like Ensure, quote-unquote, high protein, which is nothing more than sugar. So we're feeding our cancer patients sugar while we're giving them chemotherapy. I think it's outrageous and ridiculous. Uh, now they're talking, and you see a lot of articles about it, not specifically related to sugar necessarily, but the chemotherapy doesn't work in the long run. And I guess maybe this is one of the examples of why it doesn't really work Uh well, isn't that what you're, you know, I, that, well, you give the exam. Saying. Yeah. I, I, essentially, it, it's how you define work. If you spray the, your kitchen floor with Raid, you will kill the roaches. But if you don't take the food supply away from them, they will come back. That's what I'm saying. So when you look at the statistics in chemotherapy, yes, it quote unquote works, but only temporarily. You have to change your diet, you have to go into a ketogenic state. Dr. Jacoby, I, when I go to the doctor, and I've said this on my show many times because I do interview a lot of physicians or many physicians, 
I and I'm I'm healthy or and I weigh what I'm supposed to weigh and so I don't think that any one of my physicians at any time primary care physician for instance ever asked me how what my sugar intake is I mean they go by my weight so they I I guess the assumption is well you must not be eating too much sugar but that may not be the case is what you're saying That's correct but generally you you probably could draw that conclusion if your weight is uh under control, and we measure that by the BMI, the basal uh, metabolic index. In other words, your weight divided by your height. So if you're down about 24, that's a good weight. So the assumption is you're not eating a lot of sugar because you're not producing a lot of insulin. Now, with my patients, I like to measure their insulin production. If your insulin is very high, it's impossible to lose weight because insulin is the only molecule that adds weight to your body. And so the pre-diabetic state is insulin resistance. So let's circle back to what that word means. There's a lot of research has been done over the last 20 years, and I work with Dr. John Cook, who is a vascular biology at, biologist at Stanford. He also has a MD in uh, cardiology as well. And he has a very specific molecule he works with, and it's called, this is where it gets really technical, but... It's called asymmetric dimethylarginine. Now, what does that word mean? That's a molecule that blocks the nitric oxide pathway from the food we're eating. And the nitric oxide pathway, which I describe in the book, it's it's very technical. However, it blocks the blood supply. So let's talk about an end organ. It can be any end organ. It can be the muscle in your hand from the median nerve in the wrist, which is carpal tunnel. It blocks the blood supply. You'll get tingling, numbness, loss of feeling, and eventually loss of function. The muscle doesn't work. So in my book, what I'm saying is it doesn't matter which nerve is being affected because it's going to affect the end organ. In the nomenclature in medicine, we describe the accident site, not the cause. In other words, where did the accident happen? If it's in your face, and you have Bell's palsy, described by a doctor in the 1860s, who obviously didn't know what we're talking about today. He said, well, look, you're, you're drooling, and your muscle in your face is not working. People who have Bell's palsy have a 40% higher incidence of diabetes. The same applies to Alzheimer's disease. And in my hypothesis, the first loss of function in the brain comes from the olfactory nerve. That's cranial nerve number one. You lose the sense of smell. You eventually lose your memory, and you will eventually die from inflammation of the brain. But the cause is the same. It's sugar. Now, I get into the details of how this chemistry works and how it causes compression. It gets a little little tedious. Hopefully, we, we did a good job in explaining that. But think of the nerve sugar plus a protein. Let me, let me give you a little, little story. Remember when you're at the Thanksgiving dinner and it's a very high-carbohydrate dinner, even the turkey itself that gets crispy, that's called the Maillard reaction, a sugar plus a protein. So look at your wrist, and the nerve is made up of collagen, protein. And when you add sugar, the nerve becomes less flexible. 
at the same time, the tunnel that it goes through is getting smaller and smaller until it shuts off the blood supply. That's the whole hypothesis behind this entire book that I've written. But it goes back to 1973, Upton and McComas researchers, uh, hand researchers, first made that observation. It is sugar. So if we've established the problem, because I know you do this in the, obviously you do it in the book, now, now what do we do? Given the, the, circum, the state of, uh, you know, our circumstances today, you are in a way fighting the medical community because they're telling you to take statins and fat is the problem uh, that's causing all of these, the, the, this, these conditions, which is, which is not true. We have the food industry feeding us sugar and everything that we, most every product that we try, that we buy in the grocery store. How to, what do we do? I mean, how do we maintain a low sugar diet? And I guess you are, one can then reverse or prevent, or you can prevent, but can you also reverse this nerve damage that causes all of this, um, this, this damage in our body? And if disease. you get it early enough, you can. I divide it into five phases. Phases one and two, yes, you can reverse. You can take supplements. You can change your diet drastically. It will reverse. When you get into phase three, where you have constant pain, where we're talking about the feet, you start to get numbness and tingling, and then the pain is rather intense. Most people, when they go to their doctor, they're put on a medication. The most popular medication in the United States today is Lyrica. And Lyrica works in the brain, so you don't feel that pain. It does work in relieving the symptoms. But the process continues. You go into phase four. I hear this all the time. I say, doctor, my feet feel better. I have less pain. I have more numbness, but I have less pain. That Lyrica must be working. I said, well, it's not working. It's you're continuing to go along the cascade into the next phase. And then they get into phase five, and they say, doctor, I'm all better. I have absolutely no pain. I don't have any feeling in my feet. And then I look at the bottom of their foot, and they got a hole in their foot. It's an ulcer. And then they get gangrene, and they lose their leg. That's a very dangerous disease. However, when you look back through their entire medical history, they have had every itis, migraines, cholecystitis, um, eye problems, kidney problems, high blood pressure, cholesterol, quote-unquote, problems. So when you look at it, a patient over time, you can see that they're being gradually poisoned by sugar, although they have never identified the sugar as that poison because they'll say, my blood, my blood test was normal. And it's true. It takes about 40 years before the pancreas is destroyed. And then all of a sudden your sugar sh- shoots up to three or 400 and then they could proclaim, you are a diabetic. No, you were a diabetic in metabolic syndrome for the last 40 years. You just didn't know it. you got to change your diet. Medicine's not going to help. All the medicines used in, in the diabetic world, metformin, uh, glyparide, and glyposide, and all these different medications allow you to eat more sugar. They do keep your, your blood sugar down but they're allowing you to eat more sugar. The newest drug is, works in the kidney to pump sugar out of your kidney. Well, I mean, it's just insane to think about that. Substitute the word sugar for arsenic. Would you take a drug so you could eat more arsenic? That would be, it'd be ludicrous, but that's what we're doing. 
This is a national well, disgrace, in my opinion. Well, I guess that we I I could go on with this. I want people to read your book because it's it's a, obviously it's something it's I think that we all need to read. Sugar Crush: How to Reduce Inflammation, Reverse Nerve Damage, and Reclaim Good Health. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show this morning, Dr. Richard Jacoby. Thank you. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. We're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.CatherineZox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.